it's so important that individuals be self-reliant when it comes to money. Yeah. It comes to money. I think they, they can't rely on the government to be their longevity insurer of last resort, their health insurer of last resort. Self-reliance is going to become much more important. And, and no one wants to hear that, by the way. That's not a popular message yeah. because people want to see more from their government. So I think that self-reliance is going to become more important. I think we are on we are on in a period of uncharted waters. And I think what that requires you to do is come to the realization that your money is much more precious than it's ever been. It's a precious resource. So you need to get multiple uses from that money. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Harry, welcome to the Better Wealth Show. Caleb, great seeing you again, and it's really uh, wonderful to be with you today. I, I I told you this before you getting on and before us recording. I've I know a lot of people in this business. I've read a lot of books. I'm really grateful for the people that have poured in my life. You have written in this this one book right here, financial the financial verses. It is probably one of the most detailed, clear understanding of money. And when I when I read it, I'm like, it's only a matter of time until someone like me or someone else helps you get this this message out, because you have a wealth of knowledge. You you're very clear about your you wanting to give back to America as it relates to financial literacy. And so I can tell you this pretty confidently. Thank you for being on, and thank you for accepting my future interview request because. <laughs> I'm I'm just grateful that you're that you're willing to write books like this, come on my show, and share share with America and the world better ways to um, handle their money. And so, thank you. Oh, you're you're quite welcome, Keila. As you know, I mean, I've worked around the world in helping people solve their financial problems, provide for their financial futures, and I'd like to share that knowledge and and help people build a better life. That's uh, that's where I am in what I call the fulfilling stage of my life. And we're gonna we're gonna go through the stages. We're gonna talk about. I'm 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 gonna just throw a lot of money concepts at you, um, because in our previous conversations, you're just a wealth of knowledge, and that's what I'm afraid of. Is this this will this could be an eight hour episode, and it's not going to be. Um, but there's so much that we could talk about. Why don't you give a little bit of your background? Because I think that's what very much hooked um, me, like wanting to learn from you. And then then what I realized is like, yes, you're very accomplished on the business side, and are helping us professionally. But then from the financial literacy side, obviously, you've learned all that through your journey. So what is your um, bio in a nutshell? Uh, I've been in the financial services business for over 30 years. And uh, I actually started out, Caleb, I was a CPA by training. And a lot of times when I tell people that, they assume I'm not creative and there's no, I'm just analytical, which is not the case. I've been creative my entire career. But uh, I, I've worked in financial services, all aspects, everything from property and casualty insurance life insurance, annuities, investments, advice. And I've had the opportunity to do that in the United States, all over Asia, all over, all over Eastern, excuse me, all over Western Europe. So I've worked around the world. I've worked in Africa and helping with uh, being employed by different companies. And I've done everything from uh, being the chief marketing officer of a top 50 life insurance company to being the CEO of two of the nation's largest life and annuity companies. So I've done a variety of different things. And then in the, most, uh, in the last several years, I've worked significantly with distribution organizations, trying to reach out to the consumer, do a better job of understanding what the consumer is all about. And now as I've reached a certain stage in my uh, professional life, I've focused solely on the consumer and how we can work to educate the consumer better to help them protect themselves. On, on a side note, when we were talking the first time, I just, I just like threw different, I, I shared the vision of better wealth and what we're hoping to accomplish as it relates to distribution. And not only were you tracking, but you, you know all the key players in this game. And, and it's, just, it's just unbelievable your knowledge as it relates to our business, mm -hmm. but then how, how you're able to take that knowledge and simplify it, because I think there's a gap between the, the people that are very smart that know what they're doing and the communication to actually help people, I would say majority of, of America and actually help them get results. And, and so that's, 
that's that's been remarkable and that that uh experience um has definitely given you a lot and so why did you end up writing this this series it's the common common sense approach to your money the financial verses why don't you explain a little bit about that and your heart behind that oh sure well first off uh I reached a stage in my life where my wife had an illness and I had to stop all of my work activity to be her caregiver for about two years. And during that time, I said, what, what can I do to, what can I do to give back? And I began to look more and more into uh, personal financial literacy and I'm trying to understand it. And I have this, uh, exp- I try to explain it to people that in our country today, we mandate more time to drive a vehicle, to get a license to drive a vehicle than we do to drive money. And in fact, only 19 states in the United States require any sort of personal finance course mandated by the time someone graduates high school. And if you go back, Caleb, about 10 years, maybe only a handful of states in reality. So here we are today in a highly technological world with bombardment of financial products and services on an ongoing basis. And people just, they don't have any financial background. And it's been going on for a long time. And then you see record bankruptcies, you see student loan debt, you see a lot of the results of this lack of education. So I said, okay, I've done this all around the world. How can I, can, how can I come up with some sort of uh, summary for them? And you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. My daughter is a, uh, a fan of the Marvel comic universe. So Christmas, a little over two years ago, she gave me the book and said, here, dad, you, you can read it. And I said to myself, you know, I should give her a book too. So I, I said, okay, Laura, I'm going to write a book about money. I'm going to call it the financial verse, and I'm going to give it to you. So it'll be, it'll talk to you about the world of money. And it's funny, it's, uh, and that's what I've done. So I tried to distill 35 years of experience into something that's easy for people to understand and use in their life. And, and so with that, if, if you, if you had a, just a blank whiteboard in a room of people that wanted a better way, but knew nothing about money. What are the basics that you're trying to get across either on that whiteboard or through your voice to help people understand the, the basics? Because I want to dive into your book and we, that might be the start. Um, but sure. I want to give like, I'm always curious, how do, how do you explain to people that are hungry to learn more, but don't necessarily know where to start? I think you need to start by trying, let's take a 50,000 foot view. And I'm a firm believer, um, in Stephen Covey. And I believe in Stephen Covey, begin with the end in mind. Um, as, a, as a young man growing up, Yogi Berra was the baseball player, was one of my, uh, one of my heroes. And he had an expression as if, you know, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. And so I said, okay, what is, what is a financial life look like? And so I said, okay, there are three stages in my mind. The first is adulting. And, you know, adulting is where you learn, you learn the rules of money. And we can go into that, what else is involved in that. But that first stage is adulting. I call it the journey to age 30. Because I believe in our society today, we've extended adolescence from 14 to eight, from 18 up to 30. And that's, so if by age 30, if you can have a job, good relationships, be self-sustaining, and the bank of mom and dad is closed, by the time you reach that point, today that's pretty good. Because by the way, much longer life expectancies. Yeah. So I said, okay, fine, adulting. Second stage, striving. Because you're gonna work for 40 years. You're gonna work to your 70. Now, a lot of people say, oh no, Harry, you know, retirement will be in the 60s. I just don't think that's going to happen uh, in our world. We're gonna extend it to age 70 for a number of reasons. Uh, longer life expectancies, lower savings rates, Money is going to become a much more precious commodity. And I do think we face a number of factors such as technological change, which will impact people's employment. I think taxes will also be higher. That's my view. We're going to have to pay for all of these uh, pandemic-related subsidies and, and, and giveaways to people and to entities. So many are very necessary, by the way, but we're going to have to pay for them some way. So I think you're going to work for 40 years till age 70. So during that period of time, what do you do? Uh, what are your thoughts? And then my last stage of life, and I don't agree in retiring, by the way. I don't think that's appropriate anymore. I call the last financial stage of life fulfilling. And that's when you decide, you know, you, you basically, many people have different goals. And I, I talk to people all the time about this. Some people say, you know, Harry, I'm gonna, I love what I do. I'm going to continue to work. 
or you know, I want to give back to my church. I'm going to work in my church. I'm going to volunteer time. I'm going to work at the hospital. I want to travel. You know, I've never traveled. I want to do those things. And all that's great. So if you're if you're looking at your life as you know as adulting, striving, and fulfilling, well, if you're and if you're going to live a long life, which today people are living a lot longer, right? How are you going to fund all of the fulfilling aspects? You're going to have to have money to pro provide for those things. And along the way, in each of these stages, there are various financial decisions that you have to make. So I tried to highlight what those were, and then to tell people, look, here's what your life's going to look like. Here are some of the major things you're up against. And hey, by the way, it's okay to have a coach along the way. Right. Because we all need coaches. We get coaches for different things in our lives. But having someone who's a money coach, someone who can work along with you, that's a good idea. And then lastly, I think, Caleb, unfortunately, the regulatory environment in our country today makes, because you just can't get one coach typically. You need, you'll need a couple of different coaches to help you get where you need to be. Right. Yes. And in this, this episode, we're going to cover all three stages. I've highlighted, obviously, we can't go through your whole book on this, this, uh, this uh, show. So everyone go buy the book. Um, we'll give you a, a link and, and the best way to do that in the show notes. Um, but one of the things that I want to cover before we, we delve into some of the highlights of each stage is you talk about the economic realities that were in in the book. And I know you have a just a deep understanding of economics. So in 2021, what are the what are some of the economic realities that we live in and what are some of how will that translate into us depending on what stages that we're in? Oh, I think that's a it's a it's a great question. I think when you look our world today we we are in the midst of entering into the fourth industrial revolution and you're just starting to see it as we see artificial intelligence play a part of our lives, technology, all those things are coming together in a major way. And that's going to impact not the way we live, the way we work. And we've seen in the last year where we work, because technology does that in a pretty, pretty major way. And so individuals are going to have to prepare themselves, are going to have to prepare themselves for this period of time, because what it's going to result in is that you and I are in different, different from different generations. To me, your generation might have 10 to 15 different jobs. Yep. So also you're going to live a lot longer. Yep. Likely you're gonna live well into your 90s and maybe do 100. And my generation will probably get to 90. So, I mean, that's a planning horizon. That's quite interesting. You really have to think through this. Um, other things that are coming along are the state of our, our social safety net. Yeah. And uh, what's going to happen there? I, I don't believe the social safety net will go away, but I do think it will be renegotiated. I think, it, I think it's going to change. It's going to have to change in a major way. So you have a number of technological factors coming in, longer life expectancies. And unfortunately, I guess one item I, I need to mention that I, that I to, to focus on is re available returns are changing. When I was a young man and I started, uh, when I got my first real large home, the first home I ever bought, Caleb, I had a 12% mortgage. All right, 12% more, and I was really happy I got it. Yeah. And by the way, I could put money in the bank at 14%. Yeah, that's nuts. Okay, and so where we are today, we're in a, we're in a, a near zero interest rate world, a low return world, that impacts today's generation in terms of what they need to save because they're, you know, how they're going to need to save more yeah. of what they, of what they earned in order to be able to provide for their longer life expectancies and the changes they're going to go through. So you've got a number of these factors that are coming to, 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 to together, if you will. And then lastly, lastly, look at what technology is doing to how we manage money yeah. and how we look at money. I mean, I had a friend that went to, as a young son, they went to the store, went to the mall and uh, his son wanted something. And uh, my friend said, no, no, you can't, son, you can't have that. He said, he said, dad, just go over to the money machine and get the money for me. And I'll, you know, we can, you can, you can buy me this. And yeah. he had to explain to the son that look, money just doesn't come out of the money machine. I've got to put it in before it goes out. Yeah. So all these things are coming together to require that people be more educated yeah. about money and economics and, uh, and how these various factors impact them on a day-to-day -day basis. I 100% agree. And it's interesting. 
on just understanding how interest rates affect house prices, how they affect the market. And, and, and it's interesting because we, a lot of times financial planning looks back in, in, in the past over a hundred years, whatever, and, and says, you know, how things work. But I, I had the, I had, I asked Dr. Wade follow this question because he, he's done a lot of studying about distribution rates and retirement planning. And the question that I have is yes, with interest rates being so low, we always assume that the market has to go up. We assume that house prices will always appreciate. But I think in, I think the interest rate has definitely manipulated that, and I think the printing of money also has has potentially manipulated that number. Do you do you? Obviously, I'm not asking for any predictions, but how are we going to get through this time? Because someone that is probably more of a free market person, it's like. I wonder how we get out of this because it can't all go up and I feel like it's sort of fake. And the one thing that Dr. Wade said is like, we've never had an, the market and interest rates, the factors have never been here. So we can look back and say the 4% rule and say all this stuff, but it's like, we're kind of in uncharted waters. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I kind of, I agree with him uh, because I'll give you an example of uncharted waters. There's a school of thought that says we have to pay back the large amount of debt that our government has accumulated, and that's, an, that's gonna overhang our economic growth going forward. There's a new school of thought that says, doesn't matter, government, just keep printing all the debt you want, putting the money back into the country. That's a huge change in assumption from what, we've, what we could do going forward. So I think we find ourselves at a real tipping point. And what I think it does, and I, I'll try to cut through this for you, Caleb, I think what it does is it, it's so important that individuals be self-reliant when it comes to money. Yeah. It comes to money. I think they, they can't rely on the government to be their longevity insurer of last resort, their health insurer of last resort. Self-reliance is going to become much more important. And, and no one wants to hear that, by the way. That's not a popular message yeah. because people want to see more from their government. So I think that self-reliance is going to become more important. I think we are on in chart, we are on in a period of uncharted waters. And I think what that requires you to do is come to the realization that your money is much more precious than it's ever been. It's a precious resource. So you need to get multiple uses from that money in, in a good way. You have to get those multiple uses. And I think, and I know you and your uh, your business and your podcast, you talk about making a dollar do more than one thing. Yep. And I think that's what we, we all have to do. We, we, we really have to manage it. And what that gets back to, to me, is just common sense. And that's why in my book, it's just, there are certain, call them the rules of physics when it comes to money. Yep. You know, you can't spend more than you make forever. You know, you, you, it's not, that's not going to work. I mean, that's not, I mean, uh, time is a precious commodity. Take advantage of it. It's really important. Basic, basic item. Now, buying a house, you would say to me, and, and you, again, you and I are different generations. My generation, everyone said, buy a house. Go ahead. Greatest thing you could ever do. Today, people ask me that question. I said, it depends. Yeah. You know, where do you, where are you in the, where do you live in the country? Psychologically, how long we, I mean, do you need a home or are you comfortable renting? Uh, what do you have a multi-generational household versus just a single family household? What are, what are all the particulars there? So I think today, a lot of these decisions get back to, it depends. Yeah. And what that requires therefore is education and education, a knowledge and a coach to help you make some of these decisions. Now, can you navigate it to find what I'll call financial security? Yes, I believe you can. I think you can do that. But it, it takes a little thought, training, and education to get there. And, and really, the, the other thing that we need to look at is what, what goal do you actually want? We can't, nowadays, you can't make a blanket statement. And I just made a blanket statement saying that. But it's like, it's, everyone wants something a little bit different. And what I find is people are going to the, the fire movement, going to YouTube, going to Google and saying, should I do X, Y, or Z? Should I, is this thing a good investment? And I just think what I want to be is like the mirror that says, okay, what do you want? And how will this decision help you get closer to where you want to go? And when I, when I, my eyes got open to that, if you have a basic understanding of how money works, 
you can start making decisions. And yes, having a coach that's not emotional about your situation is definitely beneficial. But I find that like, if we can teach people how to fish, we're, we're going to do so much good for our society versus the, the, you, you know, just come to me for advice because that, that's a slippery slope as well. Oh, totally agree. Awareness is really important. Money awareness is key. So in your book, you talk about the 10 to do's or yeah. must do's, and then you talk about the eight key risks. And we're not going to go through all of them, but do you have some favorite 10 must do's and, and, and in, in that that you wrote, right? And then I want to talk about the, the, um, some of the key highlighter, key um, eight risk before we get into the different stages and some of the, the key items that I took from the, from the book. Okay. Two, the two, my favorite two must do's, if you will. Number one is you have to have a budget. And in, in life, to me, and, I, and when I say budget, and I found this, it's, it's interesting, Caleb, as I've gone around the country, done podcasts, talked to people, when I say budget, about 50% of the, the audience kind of goes to sleep and moves over to the side a little bit. And, and then the other 50% want to get violent with me. They don't want to hear this. They, they just don't want to hear it. But what, what a, and I call a budget a cash plan. Yep. You have to have a cash plan to understand what cash you have coming in and what cash you have going out. Because I learned in business, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Right. And, and the key to life is, I mean, the key to a, a secure financial life. I'm not talking about being a, a multi-multi-millionaire, but just to have security in your family is positive after-tax cash flow. And so if you can't see that your cash income is 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 exceeding your cash outflow you're not going to get there so budgets are real important i've uh, it changed my life when i was in college i had to i put myself through school i started then i have a little uh, i started up a little spreadsheet model way back then i still use it i do a two-year flow uh, a two-year forward cash budget i still do it to this day i've taught my children i've taught my nieces and nephews how to use it and they use it my daughter and I were talking the other day. She said, Dad, I was looking at my cash budget. I should be able to do that. Uh, I'll have this much saved by this date. And yeah, I think I can go on that trip with you. I'll be fine. I'm there. Wow. That, to me, that was just really fulfilling. So the budget and knowing what your cash plan is, is so important. The second one, and Caleb, I think this is, this is really important, is something I call spend to. The average American spends, and I, I, I don't mean to sound like a walking fact fact group, but I'll give you a couple of important information. A factor, if you will, walking Wikipedia. Uh, when you look at it, the average American spends two minutes and 24 seconds a day managing their money. Hmm. All aspects of money, two minutes and 24 seconds. I think you should spend about two hours a week or 17 minutes a day managing your money. And, and what, what that means is not only the logistics of paying your bills and, and, and check, doing checkpoints on your insurance coverages and investments, but learning. Because yeah. uh, in our country, there's such a personal literacy deficit. People just don't understand. And, and I know you'll appreciate this. As I was doing this book, I had a photo shoot with the publishing company and the crew that was taking my picture, they made an old guy look really good. But what they did was, was nice. They were all, they were all, they're all young folks. And it was interesting. After we did the photo shoot, I spent over an hour after they found out what I did answering money questions. They wanted to have money conversations. There, there was nowhere in their life they could go to get that where someone would talk to them. What should I do about this? How should I handle my student loan debt? You know, should I save? Should I pay off? I mean, just a variety of questions, variety of, they wanted someone to talk to. And so to me, if you spend two hours a week improving your money knowledge, you, it'll help you deal with all these complex financial issues you're going to have in your life. So those are my, my, my two, the budget, the cash plan, and spending two hours a week. You know, that's interesting because where should you spend the first time in the two hours you should track your money? And I've heard many people say, if you track your money, you control it. And that's so true. And yet, so many people do not don't don't know anything about what's coming in, where their money's going. We call it a consumption plan because you're either consuming or you're saving and controlling. And at the end of the day, a lot of people um, don't have a clue. Um, in our research, majority of the people that track money are financially balanced. Majority of people that don't, no matter how much money they make, are not financially balanced. 
And it's just, it's just interesting. And so that's, I echo what you're saying. So you talk about the eight key risk in your book. Is there any two favorites that you have from that list? Yes. Um, I think that the two that I have, one would be longevity. And I think that's, you know, you really have to play the long game. And what longevity risk is, it's the risk that you're going to run out of money before you run out of life. Yeah. And it, it's real. It's real because to, today's 70-year-old today's is the 50-year-old of, of, of 20 years ago. We are all going to live longer. We're much more active. We're much more involved. And to fund that cost, to fund that, is so important. And you really need to, uh, uh, to, to make sure you take care of it. So longevity risk is a key one for me. Uh, I, also believe, um, I also believe mortality risk or the risk of premature death is really important for people. And, and what I mean is, and, and I'm not trying to position life insurance as the best thing in the world, but most folks aren't thinking about this in the sense that if you die prematurely, yep. you know, your future, your future earnings primarily were going to be used to provide for your loved ones or for the things that matter to you. So if, you know, if you're no longer living, how are you going to take care of that? Now, I know you've had a, a business associate who passed away with cancer. You talk about this in your podcast. And I had a business, I had a young man who worked for me, uh, unfortunately, uh, stage four cancer, young man, he passed away. But luckily, his, his wife and, and, and his sons were well taken care of because of the coverage he had in place. And he told people that all the time. It was a wonderful story, by the way. And he, he battled his illness for eight years. But he, he, during this eight years, he would tell the story and how he felt comfortable that he was going to leave his, his sons in a good shape if something were to happen. So I think longevity and premature death are two that are really important. There are others, but those two, those two stand out. But one of the things, Caleb, that I have found is most people haven't sat down to really look at the risks that they face in life. Yeah. Be it uh, the education risk they have, and I'll, I'll just touch on it quickly. You know, picking the right school is that school going to that education going to generate an income that you need? Yeah. If you if you make the wrong decision there, that's a costly one for you. And I and I don't say this disparagingly, but say you get the history degree versus the yeah. data science degree, you could be stuck with fifty thousand dollars of loans that you can't support, you can't you can't fund. Whereas if you had taken the data science major and you'd be off and running, and while it may not be your passion, maybe there's a way to balance your passion with earning earning income, for instance. Yeah. It's, it's so ironic, the college that I went to, and I think most colleges are like this, my uh, you know finance and the people that went for accounting paid the same amount for tuition as the history and art majors. And it's just, it's just a little bit interesting because it's like if you look at college from a cash flow perspective, the return... The rate of return on cash flow could be a little bit different. Um, and so I, I want to mention the longevity. One of the eye openers for me, and it's, a, it's actually very discouraging looking at where our world's at and then understanding inflation. Because, you know, right now, if you take out over 30 years and you, and you assume a 3% inflation rate, which I want to ask you what, you're, what you think would be a good factor for inflation, the number's insane. It's like more money than like most people have saved up in one year. And I go, there's no way like that can't happen. And then someone challenged me to go back to 1960 and look at the median household income, which was $5,600. And I'm like, and so I'm just starting to realize that not only are most people totally not ready for retirement, I don't think people are factoring in inflation. And I know for myself, even personally, I don't even want to think about it. How should we factor in long-term inflation for how we plan? And is it even realistic to main, keep a maintain income stream when you factor in inflation? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. If you ask me my personal, I, my personal way of looking at that today, 3% sounds reasonable. Federal Reserve's targeting two. They try to keep inflation within that bound. If it got up to three or if it moved to a significantly higher percentage, I think they have learned how to take care of it. Now, I, I, earlier in our conversation today, I told you I had a 12% mortgage and 14% at the bank. That was the time when the Federal Reserve stepped in to stop that. They basically did a variety of, took a variety of actions to uh, reduce 
to set us on a path of reduced rates. So I think they know more about that today, but you're right about, uh, I think 3% is a good assumption, but yeah. you are so right. I'll give you a great example. I was sitting down with my nephew planning his college and he was, uh, he and I were talking, he said, well, you had it really good, you know? And, and I said, well, you know, my first job, I made $13,000 a year. And, and so I then sat down and did the roll forward. And my first job, I, I actually was making $58,000 when I graduated. And I had, and I, it's interestingly, I had $30,000 of school loans. So I was trying to compare his world to my world, but uh, inflation has a devastating impact. Yeah. But I think you have to sit down as you do planning and take that into consideration. And that's one of the reasons why you'll see people having a much higher mix of equities in their later, their later years yeah. than we would have seen historically, because equities typically give you that inflation hedge, an right. example of how you deal with it. It's also interesting that the cash flow model that we use uh, in, in coaching, we can kill people on the model, <laughs> which is saying, if you die here, if you die here. And I think one of the, one of the most shocking things is majority of people, their whole financial life is built around them earning income. And I know that you've talked about this in your book about protecting your most important asset. Uh, and it's so, it's so fascinating. Cause it's like, if someone, if something happened to you and you got, um, it, like injured and one, couldn't work, or if you died, your whole beautiful financial plan goes out the window. And, and then it takes away the conversation of like, how much, how much do you love your family? We don't even talk about that. It's just like, this is, this is what the reality is. And it, it's, it's been such a, just going back to your other key risk of, of dying early, it's, it's, it's unlikely from large numbers, but when it does happen, it's absolutely devastating. And I think, um, again, I, for you and for myself, actually living through a, a good friend, a, a colleague going through that, um, it, it gives you a different perspective. And so just want to echo that. Um, let's talk about the three stages, um, the, the adulting, the striving, and the fulfilling. And I think there's a lot in there. In, in the adulting, there's a lot of things I could talk about. But the two things that I highlighted is the cost of learning. And is student loans your friend or foe? Because I think this is a question that we get a lot. So, and then I'll let you in any of these stages, if you have a, a favorite story or point, I'll let you go. Um, but, but again, this is going to be hard to keep this to not eight hours. Cause this is just such, so fun talking about talking to you. Uh, so let's, let's talk about the cost of learning. Unfortunately, when you take a look at higher education today, my belief is you have to look at it with the objective that you're going to get a payback. Hopefully I'm getting an education to be able to earn an income. And that may not be what a lot of people want to do. I want to go school, I want to go to school and study creative writing. I want to do, I, I want to do these different types of studying, but those jobs may not pay anything. And you won't be able to support yourself when they're over. So what I say to folks is you really need to get your education that's going to give you an income. And if you feel strongly about those other aspects that you want to do in your life, Find a way to build them in as a hobby. It's something secondarily that you do. But as you're making this education decision, pay your tuition with the assumption that you're going to get a payback in terms of a better job. And what you may end up doing there is, for instance, you may find that instead of going to a public, uh, a public university, a, a state university will be fine. Yeah. You might find that uh, going to a community college for your first two years and then finishing the last two years at a, at a, at a private university, that's a great way to go. It solves the cost equation differently than many people have looked at before. But at the end of the day, your college education has to give you an income. And Caleb, I'm a great example of that. I went to school to get a job. I became a CPA. I studied accounting. What did I do after that? I have traveled the world because I wanted to get education about cultures, art, uh, different things. So I supplemented with my other activities I really wanted to do those things, but I needed a job. And so I went to a university to get a job. So I think that's, uh, that's, that's key. Secondly, student loans are not a bad thing, uh, in my view, provided you're borrowing that money to get the education that provides you with the income you need. Yeah. And, and so that's, you know, the, the, what we find today is most people who have student loan issues, I, I believe, as you know, are those that didn't finish school. Yeah, or got a, a degree with not thinking with the end in mind. Absolutely. Total, totally, totally agree with you. So 
I think student loans are good. For instance, a mortgage loan is good. A car loan can be good, provided you can pay it, you need the car for your work, that makes good economic sense. So debt can be good. Debt's nest, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not a person that, from the school that all debt is bad. Um, some debt, you know, I don't, I don't agree with credit card debt because that's terrible. It's just the interest rates in a 0% world to pay 16 to 20% interest is just totally outrageous. It doesn't help anyone at all. Yep. So I think from an education standpoint, student loans can be good, provided that you're borrowing the money to get that future income stream that you, yep. that you need. Yeah. And, and let me just also just share what, what I'm picking up and what you're saying is it's, it's not necessarily the debt that's an issue. It's what you're using it for. And there's, there's good debt and bad debt. I, I, I say that good debt puts money back in your pocket. Bad debt takes money away from you. And, yeah. and we have to look at college as less of a, something that I deserve or it's a, it's a right and more of a, a it's a business. If I go here, how will this impact my my life? There should be like an income curve if I do this versus I do that, and it should be calculated. And yep. if and if you can get debt for for low interest that can allow you to make more money, that's that's incredible, because that activity is providing more money in your pocket. But Absolutely. but for the people that are going to potentially going to schools that are super expensive, people that are not finishing college, people that are doing getting degrees that aren't necessarily helping them increase their income. In fact, it might put an income limit. It, it, could, it could be devastating, but it's not necessarily the debt problem. It's what, what you're going to school for and the mindset of school. Yeah, and, and let's, by the way, this varies by country, but in the US, remember, I think we have about 30% of the population is college educated, only 30%. You still earn more with a college, an appropriate college degree in this country than you do having a high school degree. Although many companies are hiring based on skill set and not education today, let's be careful about that. But typically, if you if you get a, a college degree in a reasonable field of concentration, you will earn more over your life than if you didn't get that degree. So that's great. Other countries around the world, that's not the case. Hmm. So the, the, your your lifetime earnings potential from graduating high, uh, secondary school versus a tertiary uh, a tertiary institution is the same, hmm. believe it or not, in certain countries. So, uh, by the way, I think that's the case in England. Hmm. Just so you know, is so that if you look, a lot of people going to college, or is there not a lot of people going to college? Well, that's well, that's interesting. A lot more people go to college. So what they've done is, effectively, it's like going to high school. Huh. Yep. So, yep. so, so there's no real specialty there. Yep. But, uh, but going forward, education is so important today because you're, you know, I, I write about this uh, to future-proof your income. You know, you need to periodically reskill, upskill your, your basic, you know, your, your knowledge about, about you know, reskill. Uh, for instance, if you're an airline pilot today, you're looking for another job because the airlines aren't flying. So what do you do quickly? So you reskill to, to qualify for another profession. Mm -hmm. Upskilling something we all do. Uh, maybe I'll take a class in project management, so I'll be a more valuable employee. Maybe I'll, I'll learn this app. I'll get this certification. I'll learn to do uh, to take on a, a new database, uh, a, a new utilization of a new database, so I can provide better data for my company. Those are better skills. I'll get paid more for those. Yeah. So that's upskilling, and uh, I just think people need to focus on those too. Those are a couple of other things, but please go ahead. Yeah, I mean that lot, lot, lot of good. And if you know somebody that's uh, thinking about college, that's in in the midst of you know considering if they should stick with college or or even paying off student debt, I think I think this episode is just going to be so encouraging. And again, I push back to your your website and your book, like that your you really have the key to helping people understand and and being able to fish for themselves. Let's talk about the striving stage. And, and you talk about cost of living, and then you also talk about the importance of a budget. Can you talk a little bit more about the stage and some of the key things like, and I also wrote down credit cards and uh, protecting your greatest assets. So this was for me, there was a lot of meat here uh, as far as the, the, the ch these chapters. Well, the striving stage of life is from age 30 to age 70. And that's the time really where you're, you're paying for all your, cost of, all your cost of living. If you have decided to have dependents, I mean, you're you're going to become married. You're, you're going to get married soon. So as you go through, do that. You know, you might have. You're going to have. If you decide to have children, you need to provide for them and make sure they're well taken care of. So that's something you have to pay for. You might have aging parents that need your assistance during that period of time. 
that could be something very important. So you've got to you've got to earn enough during this whole period of time to pay for all those things. In addition to that, what you need to do is you need to be able to put away money for your fulfilling stage of life, your your latter years also. And so uh, to do that, you've got to understand your living expenses, how you're going to manage them, how your cash flow is going to work. And an example would be uh, the average family today, based on the latest information from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average household spends a little over $63,000 a year after tax. So how do you spend that? How do you manage that? How do you make that work the best for you? And included in that 63,000 is what you're saving for your later years, by the way. So, uh, you know, how do you look, look at this? So this striving period is so important. So, you, you know, you've got to, you're, you're relying on your income over that 40 years. Yeah. So how do you protect that? I mean, do you have disability insurance coverage? Do you have life insurance? Um, you decide to buy a house. Do you have fire insurance on the home? Yeah. If you're renting, you need renter's insurance. Uh, there's a variety of different things you need to do to protect yourself and your household during that period of time. One of the common questions that people ask is how much money should I save in the striving years? Yeah, my, my, my take is you need to, you need to save an, as, actually today as much as possible, but I, I think at least 15 to 20%. Now you'll say to me, Harry, that seems outrageous. The reason I, the reason I say that, Caleb, is because there are going to be years something might happen to you. You might have an illness, a life crisis. You might be out of work for a couple of years. So I think you need to save as much as possible to consider the fact that you may have some down years when you're not able to spend that money or save that money because something's happened in your I mean, illness of a child. Uh, a variety of different things could hit you and you won't be able to save that much. So that's, that's what, where I, the target level I look to. And then also, we talked earlier about the lower level of interest rates and lower potential future returns. I think that really then behooves you to save more to make up for the fact that your your savings are going to earn less. I 100% agree. And I also have to point out that disability is probably one of the worst names for the insurance. It should be called income insurance because, and everyone should have it because majority of people need an income. And so that is so important. I'm glad that you pointed that out. Um, because yes, people need to save more money. And what I just want, also want to highlight the 15, 20%, that's also assuming you still work till age 70. What's been the most eye-opening thing is people are nowhere near, like people are going to run out of money ASAP if they don't change something. So it's not like you save 15 to 20% and you'll be able to retire early. It's like, you still need to like be in a job or a career that you love. Because the idea of retiring early is, is going to become less and less a reality unless someone has a pension, which I think the, the value of pensions are in, a lot higher than people think. Um, and, then, and then with that, we just also have the, have the expectation that like some, some of these models that we're showing is we need to, you need to save 30%. And, and that's just not realistic for some people. And so then we have to back in, but at least they know with what's going on. And so that's been probably the most eye-opening thing for me is this whole 10% is just not going to work if, if you actually want the typical financial plan. To totally agree with you. And I think people are starting to realize that as many people are starting to get income projections on what their 401k is going to yield when they retire, they're going to be in for a shock. And, and I basically, and here's one of the ways I try to explain it to people, Caleb, when you look at the average expenses by a household with two 65 year olds, instead of being $63,000 a year, the Bureau of Labor Statistics calculates it to be about 47, I think. So you get $47,000, that's what your typical household spends, an older age household. Adjusting different expenses, more on medical, less on housing, uh, you know, mix and match of what that household looks like. Then you take a look at the combined average social security benefit for people that are you know, retiring, and that might be $2,600 a year or $2,600 a month. So you're looking at it saying, oh, you're telling me I'm gonna spend $4,000 a month and I'm only gonna get 2,600 a month on social security? Yes, I call that your income gap and your income challenge. Now, how are you gonna fill that? That's gonna come from private savings, any employer benefit plans you have, you know, you gotta fill that. Yeah. And it helps people crystallize a little bit. 
uh, about what they're going to expect. I mean, another great thing that I know you and I, you, you uh, work with your clients on, you know, couple 65 years old retiring this year are looking at uh, nearly 300,000 of medical costs in their retirement, right? You look at that and people say, oh my God, 300,000, that doesn't make any sense. I try to break it down and say, look, if you're 65 today, typical life expectancy is 20 years. So it's really $15,000 a year for you and your, you and your partner. That's what you're going to have to spend on healthcare. And as you and I both know, that doesn't go very far, $15,000. No. And that's that gets, into you, that gets you in the room. <laughs> it gets, oh. uh, yeah. It's, um, it, it's, it's shocking. So it's really yeah. shocking. But uh, do you, no, I, I've had this debate with people and I don't know where I land, but do, do people spend less in retirement or do they spend more or do they spend about the same in your research? From, from what I've seen, it's going to depend on their income level prior to retirement. Okay. Typically, lower income households are going to spend 100% of what they were spending before. The higher end, people still, they'll spend less, but they're going to spend more than they expect. Yeah. And I think the key thing for me is, you know, I'm a planner. Yeah. So if, I, if I'm going to reach my fulfillment stage and I'm going to travel, well, what's my monthly travel budget? Yeah. If I'm going to take, you know, I have a neighbor that takes five cruises a year. Okay, that's great. That's that's her choice. She loves doing it. But how do you fund those? You know, so do you have your do you have your bucket of money for your? So you've got your base living expenses. Say that's four thousand a month, and then you're going to spend so much on travel. Well, how are you going to do that? Yeah, yeah. It's you. You got to sit down and and, and really. I think it needs to be more. The way I describe it in my book, there there are discretionary costs and non-discretionary costs in retirement. Yeah. So you, not, you need to get your arm around the non-discretionary because you might find yourself retiring and you can't do the things you wanted to do because you just don't have the income to do it or yeah. the asset. Let, let's talk about credit cards in this driving stage because this, this is a big topic. Oh yeah, one, one of the great topics in our whole society. Uh, I happen to be, be uh, someone who believes in credit cards, but only if you can pay them off. Okay. What I've do, what I do, and, and what I, I I work with my work with a, a number of different people on, is I use the rewards cards. You know, I'm not the points guy, but I I have used that for a number of years. So I basically set up as many of my recurring obligations as I can, and I pay them with a credit card that earns me points. Now I pay off the card each month, and I do that in a, in a proper way. But um, I use the cards to get the rewards that are made available. And an example would be in a given year, I typically pick up at least three weeks of free hotel stays by pay, just charging my normal bills, right? But I don't think you should be using credit cards to pay your living expenses. Yeah. Uh, that's not what you should be doing indeed. And as, as relating to credit cards also, we could spend a lot of time on what people need to do with their credit reports, credit monitoring, and making sure that they know what their credit scores are and they're doing a good job managing that. But so, so for me, credit cards can be good, properly used, but you shouldn't be using them every month to pay for the shortfall in your living expenses. They're a last resort, very costly. Yeah, and, and here's, here's where I'll go back and I, I'm gonna give Dave Ramsey credit. This, is, this, is a, this is, doesn't always happen, so listen up. Is right. I think for reoccurring expenses, and it goes back to the debt, if you're already gonna buy something. So, so people say like, don't do a car loan. Well, really, are you gonna buy that car? If the answer is yes, then the loan might be the best, most efficient way to do that. So on anything that you're going to purchase and you can afford it, a credit card with points is a no brainer. I, I have hundreds of thousands of points and it's not something like, it's, it's something that I've, I would have already purchased, whether it's a debit card or whether it's writing a check. Yes, absolutely. And using a credit card, you can find yourself spending more money than if you were stuck to the cash in the, in the envelope. So if you go out shopping or whatever, if you have cash in the envelope, I do think there's a lot backing up that you'll just spend less money. And so that, that is something like, I don't have cash in an envelope because if you know me for more than 10 minutes, I'm cheap and I don't like spending money at all. Um, but there are people that actually save money by cat putting cash because of it's, it's their behavior. It's not the card itself, it's the behavior. But there's no doubt that getting points is is something that's unbelievably a great hack, and and it just goes to optimization and efficiency. If you're already going to purchase something, it just makes that more attractive. No, I totally agree with you. But you know, let's go back for a second. Unfortunately, most people aren't aware of what they spend. 
exactly. Because yeah. we only have 30%, we only have 30, you know, we have like 28% of people have a budget, a written budget. Only And, and I, I, I want to audit those because I don't even believe that number. Well, but the point is they don't have an awareness of what they spend. Yep. And so if you don't have an awareness of what you spend using a credit card, most likely you're spending more than you, than That's right. you right? But on the other hand, if you use it, and I'll use, I'll use your, uh, your, use yours words here, if you use it intentionally, that's what I do. I'm using it intentionally to get a benefit. I pay it off every month. It's done. It's in my budget. I know where it is. I know how those things work. It's also easier for me to manage my finances that way. Yep. I get the rent summary of expenditures. Uh, I go in and I check monthly to make sure my cash flows are, are, are where they need to be. So my, my system of, of managing myself and measuring myself allows me to do that. But yep. um, you don't want to abuse them because it's just too costly today. It's just, it's just outrageous in a 0% world. All right. We're going to talk about the last stage, fulfilling. And I will, I'm going to just say this. I'm, I want to have you back on the show to talk about life insurance. I want to have you back on the show to talk about annuities. I want to, and so, so we can go big picture here. Um, but in the fulfilling stage, this is, this is something that we're very aligned in. I love that you use the word fulfilling um, because I think, we should we should be planning um, with intention, being intentional, and I don't really think people can live intentionally if they don't know what that true fulfillment is in their life. And so, with that, um, some of the things that I talked, uh, I highlighted in, while reading your book is the living cost, healthcare, um, the generating income. You, you go in this stage. What are some of the most important things to note uh, before we wrap up? Yeah, I think a couple of different things with the fulfilling stage of life, as you described. What are you going to do once you no longer have to work on a full-time basis? You've planned well, you've accumulated money. Well, what are you going to do now? You know, every day, you know, we'll take a Downton Abbey uh, kind of uh, a quote. Every day is a weekend. That's you right. know, what weekend? Because every day is the same. It's like Groundhog Day. So I, what you need to do, you need to plan. What am I going to do? Am I going to travel? Am I going to continue to work? Am I going to volunteer? What are the things I'm going to do that are, are going to keep me active, involved, and, and really motivated. And today people are healthier. And I, and I see this all the time. I talk to people a lot. When they find out that you write personal finance books, they want to talk to you. And they, and they say, well, you know, Harry, I'm, I'm going to continue to work. You know, I, and I had a lady, I um, had to go get an x-ray recently. And I talked to, she was talking to me, what do you do? And I said, she said, well, I'm 69 years old and I work here. And I do it because of social, social aspects. I get to meet all interesting people. I get to make a little bit of money. This is a good thing. So you have to decide what you're going to do in that fulfilling stage, because what you're going to do will then in many ways determine the money you're going to need to do it. If you're going to become a traveler, that's expensive. How do you, how do you budget that? How do you take a look at that? So that's key. Second key aspect is turning that accumulation. You, you work so hard, be it through um, stocks, bonds, life insurance, annuities, all, uh, employer plans, you've now accumulated that. How do you convert that? And I'll, and I'll say this, how do you convert this into the best after-tax income flow you can get that you're not, that's not going to run out? And so that's why I think that uh, as you looked at turning accumulation into income, th that's something you need to work on that income planning with a professional. And I believe that a part of that should be put into annuities. I think annuities are a tool that you use and, and you can use very well to help you to, to do that. And that's real important. So, uh, so as you look at this purpose, planning for that retirement income. And then lastly, as part of that planning, the two things that really stick out are healthcare costs and long-term care planning. And I will comment on long-term care planning today. That is really the thing that is, it's really, we're gonna have a crisis in our country, Caleb, because most people have not planned for long-term care. Number one, most people believe as though Medicare is going to pay for their long-term care needs. And once they figure out that Medicare has a limited benefit of about 100 days, that's all that's going to get covered. Then they realize after that, it's their own assets where they're gonna to have to qualify for Medicaid or similar program in their state. It's a real shock. And, and with um, all the uh, mental uh, issues, the memory issues, memory care, Alzheimer's, all these things, these are just, people have to plan for that. So uh, where do you get protection for 
long-term care costs as you right. age. That's something that has to be part and of the planning process. Can you, can you summarize what long-term care is for my audience? Sure. Long-term care is a insurance policy that will pay you a sum of money if you're unable to do certain activities of daily life, usually three activities of daily life. An example would be bathing, dressing, feeding yourself. You're not able to do that and you would need care either in a facility or at home. The costs of long-term care in our country are, are rising each year at a very high rate. And uh, there's information out there that's available. You can research on the internet to get it. But long-term care policies help by providing you with reimbursements, cash to pay for those costs for certain periods of time based on the policy. One of the, one of the things that I struggle most with is wanting to do too much, but uh, long-term care and DI income protection, I think are the, the two sleeper insurances that it are incredible that nobody's talking about. And so we actually got longtermscare.com for, for a future, future marketing campaign. We, we're, not, we're not even actively using it. We only, if people in our community want to talk more about that, we have people that we, that we work with. But it's, it's one of those things that I, again, I want to say, like, it's, it can be, you could work your entire life. And if you don't have the proper asset protection or long-term care protection, it all can be gone. And um, it's, it's something that not a lot of people are talking about. And it's interesting from an insurance company's perspective, a lot of insurance companies are getting out because I think they're the, I don't, I don't know why, but it's, it's definitely, it's on both sides. I'm seeing like insurance companies getting out of the long-term care insurance or not properly pricing it. And I'm seeing the, it's just not being talked about from a, from a financial coaching, fiduciary, financial planning spectrum. Yeah, I, I don't disagree in that. It's been um, because of the companies exiting the business, it's become a much more scarce uh, policy to qualify for. Stricter underwriting, yep. more limited benefits. But what, what has happened in a, on, a, on a positive note, as a number of companies have come out with annuities yep. and life insurance coverage that provides some long-term care protection. That's so, right. It's like anything else. We talked earlier about making a dollar do more than one thing. Right. So if you can make that dollar and you can get some long-term care protection while at the same time getting some life insurance protection, maybe that's not bad for that fulfilling stage of your life. Yep. All right. So if you're uh, watching this on YouTube or listening to this on the podcast and care about money, care about your life, I want you to go support Harry. Um, where can they get your book? I know they can get it on Amazon, but is there better places to get it? And sure. I'm telling you, the financial, ver the financial verse, a common sense approach to your money. I know you're coming out with a couple other books. I'm going to have you back on to talk about those um, more specifically. But how can people support what you're doing and, and just follow your journey? Yes, they can go simply to my website, financialverse.com. And we offer, uh, you can purchase the books right from the website. We also have links to the various national book distributors that are distributing the book. And Caleb, I offer a variety. I write up a twice-weekly twice blog on a variety of what I call financial hallucinations, different subjects that, that come up that I try to address. And my focus is, is more on helping people get educated and prepared. And that's what I try to do and, and try to make them think about a variety of different things so that they can reduce anxiety and stress in their lives when it comes to money. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because I'm, I'm, we're, we're talking as a company, like, I want to be less general and more specific. And then I read your book. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have an, a, another overview of money. But I'm telling you, if someone wants an overview of money and they, and they had to read one book, your, your book's at the top of my list. And I, I say that sincerely. Like, it, it, it does a good job. You're not pushing any one thing. And, but you're talking about it not from the index funds will change your life. Because I think there's a lot of people out there that just like, they think the S&P 500 is the one solution to all your, all your deals. And then I have a lot of people that are like, think life insurance is the one and only solution. It's like, it's refreshing talking to someone that knows a lot about equities, knows a lot about insurances, knows a lot about annuities, and doesn't get emotionally tied to any one of those things. And can talk about a person, where they are, articulate that and give them resources. I mean, you're, you're giving, you know, top podcasts, websites, you're giving uh, top budgeting apps. Like you're, it's just a, it's a rich book, um, just full of, full of great content. You write it in a way that I think people can understand. And so thank you. Um, is there anything else that you want to say before we go into my last question? 
No, no, I'm, 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 thank you today. It's been very enjoyable. We covered a lot of different areas and I've had fun doing it. It's, it's fun. And you know what we're going to do is we're going to, in, in, in the future, we're going to chop up this podcast and it's going to be like multiple segments because there's a lot of key, um, key nuggets there. So the way I love ending my podcast is talking to our guest about the legacy question. The legacy question essentially goes like this. This is your last day on earth and you're with the people that you love the most. You can't give them anything but this last piece of advice, this last conversation. What's that conversation going to consist of? I think I think for me, uh, one, to be humble in their lives. I think humility is is really important. And I've I've been everything from the uh, janitor in the elementary school to the CEO of a uh, hundred billion dollar company, and I've learned that humility is important. So I try to uh, so w- with those people around me, humility. Uh, caring and just compassion for others. And that's kind of the way I've tried to lead my life. And I, I think those are messages I would want to leave with them. And, uh, and I, think they, I think the people around me know that, but uh, that, those are key to me. So uh, live humbly, live with compassion and, uh, and, and work to, to be fair and reasonable with others. That's, that's kind of what I'm all about. Harry, thank you so much for living that out. And thank you again for coming on the show. And I look forward to future conversations. Great, Caleb. Same here. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.